All right, we're checking everything. Make sure everything's going good. Let's get this microphone all nice and check, check. You can be relaxed. Mm. Okay. Just, you know, <laughs> I'm going yeah. to slouch. Yeah, do whatever you need to do. That seems okay. Comfy? Good yeah. to go? You yeah. got your coffee? I got my coffee. I got a beer. <laughs> uh, it's uh, Is it on right now? It's, it's, not, it's not noon it's on a not. Sunday. Cheers. Uh, we, we'll we'll cheers in one moment. Oh, okay. There's an appropriate time to cheers. Okay. I got to do my intro. So uh, let's do it. Hello and welcome to Start the Beat with Sykes. My name is Sykes and this is my podcast. Before we get started, I just wanted to take a quick moment to thank everyone who checked out the last episode. If you're one of the people who listened to that conversation, I hope you enjoyed it. And thanks so much for watching. But for those of you out there who are new to the show, welcome. Please feel free to make yourselves at home. And as always, there's beer and soda and coffee in the fridge. Cheers. (laughs) Cheers. It is a lovely Sunday afternoon. This is my first episode back. Ooh. Been on vacation for a while in Walt Disney World, hanging out with the mouse. Really? Yeah. I'm was, from Florida, so I have no shit. many Disney experiences. You've, you've many, uh, you know, a lot of annual season pass holders yeah. for Disney World. It seems yeah. like that's like all anybody fucking does down there. It's crazy. Just go to Disney or Orlando or, People are not, or uh, Universal, not Orlando. That's all in Orlando. Yeah. yeah People I mean, are definitely obsessed. It yeah. is nuts. It is. It's nuts. And I mean, we went like at least four times a year minimum because school, every group trip, everything had, everybody had to go there Uh constantly. So I've been there all, I've been there. Actually, I haven't been there for like 20 years. So now it would be weird. I think I'm sure it's a completely different place. Yeah, no, I know it is because all my favorite rides are gone. You know, 20,000 leagues under the sea is gone. (laughs) That was so fun and cool, but actually it was kind of lame. But I mean, I, I loved it, but it's gone now. So yeah, so change it happens. Change does happen. You got to roll with whether, it. Yeah, I mean, even Pittsburgh in the past twenty years. Oh yeah, completely different. Pittsburgh in the past four, mm-hmm. completely different. But before we get into all of that, <laughs> I'm sitting here today with my friend Erica of the band Working Breed. Make some noise for the internet. Ooh, ooh. Everyone's happy that you're here. So. For those of you out there on the internet that aren't familiar with Working Breed, why don't you let the people know what it is? What is Working Breed? Working Breed is, um, we call it art rock. Yeah. Uh, And so really it's a rock and roll bass. And then we've got, um, like I'm a multi-instrumentalist and I'm the front lady and I play, I sing, but I also play trombone, trumpet, musical saw. Like I have these things hanging around and... I love different kinds of sounds. So we build them into the work because that's, those are the things that I can do. Yeah. And so it ends up getting into kind of like it's classic rock kind of feel, but then it's got this avant-garde kind of pushing around genre bendingness because when you add a trombone to rock and roll, it turns into people think it's ska, then they think it's jazzy, you know, so we like play, we like exaggerate these elements as we go through the songs. And, um, so it winds up being an experiential kind of, uh, thing. That's what's really fun about breaking outside of the box when it comes to a rock band, but bringing in other instruments. Cause there's something about like a trombone or any horn instrument that automatically makes you feel like you have to play a different backbeat. Yeah. And then once you get a different backbeat, you get a different bass and then you're getting a Mm -hmm. different sort of strumming with the guitars and it just changes the feel of everything Mm -hmm. just because of it being a horn. Yeah. It's so neat. Yeah. Yeah. It's so much fun. Everybody loves when the horn comes out, you know, people (laughs) go crazy for it. And, um, and it's, it's a really fun and the musical saw is really fun too. Like I, 
I have a love hate relationship with my own playing of the musical sob, but it feels sometimes like a gimmick, but then, then people really enjoy it or they, a lot of people haven't seen it before and it just expands their minds a little bit, um, about what it means to play music and what it means to be a musician and what you can play in your life. So, um, it's always a good part of the show because, um, not because people are like, Ooh, you play something crazy, but because they see something different and it changes their viewpoint on the totally. world a little bit. And I think, you know, you mentioned the word gimmick a little mm-hmm. bit ago and there's a conversation that happens a lot nowadays, especially with people that are like over the age of 22 yeah. where it's like rock is dead. Mm. Where is rock music? Mm-hmm. And to some extent I could see that. But yeah. then there's another part of me. It's like, well, rock is just changing. You know what people consider rock now is different from what it was when we were 22. Totally. But at the same time, another thing why I think like rock music is dying is because gimmicks used to be such an important part of <laughs> rock music. Gimmicks, yeah. ego, attitude, yeah. cockiness, and uh-huh. all that stuff got like stripped away. Yeah. And rock became this like sterile thing. Yeah. I no. think gimmicks are awesome. And gimmicks are great. Yeah. And we just had this album release show and we had um we we with our band and also we had a helper friend named Dave Flores who we together, we built a giant W, I mean like a 10 foot tall W and a 10 foot tall B with lights around the outside. And then they, we brought them into the Thunderbird and they were like our backdrops around yeah. the drummer. And then we had this like obelisk that had a lighted top that glowed different colors. And then we had these like fronds of vegetation with like smoke coming out the back, like a dried ice kind of smoke coming it. out the back. I love it. And it was just this whole experience, the whole show we curated. So it started with Cello Fury and then it went into these like sword swallowing clowns that did adult dirty humor. And like, it just progressed along as like a whole, like the whole thing was a, an experience, yeah. you know? And, um, because we wanted to have a show that we would want to go to, that would be fun and different and just something you probably hadn't seen before and full of, fun stuff like that. And I had an awesome outfit on. I mean, I had fringe all over coming from every part of my body. And it was like this crazy fun experience. We all dressed up, had kind of like a, we had an MC, um, Ian Insect, a comedian. I know Ian. He threaded the whole thing thing together with, um, you know, cause like <laughs> we were like rock gods reanimated to save the universe kind of, you know? Sure. And Hell so yeah. that's, that's what we, we like leaned into that for, for just this one show, you know, just like create this theatrical experience. And, um, we are a band that loves Motley Crue and, um, Motley Crue is full of that. Like they just oh, had yeah. so many gimmicks. And yeah. So much gimmick, so much just like rock and roll, yeah. like, the swagger that they had was unbelievable. They do call it cock rock. And uh-huh. like we did a, we did like a tribute band thing for Halloween. And now it was like three or four years ago. But um, I was like Vince Neil, but as a woman. And we had like the outfits. We like Fuck had a yeah. costume lady help us make the outfits. Um, And like, was it like, like, like. Like old school shout out the devil era. It was shout out the devil era. Yeah. Yeah, So I had like these suspenders, but I had like a bra built in, you know what I mean? But like I had the epaulettes and spikes everywhere and I had a big cod piece. And she was like, (laughs) how big do you want this cod piece to be? And I was like, you know what? It can't be too small. No, it can't be too small. Like I don't, I don't want it, people to think I have a penis actually, but I also, if I'm going to have a fake penis, it should be a big one, you know? Yeah. So like, I just inf- instantly be- 
like understood why men are obsessed with big dicks. And, um, I was just like, obviously I need to have one. If I'm going to have a pretend one, it better be big. So, um, anyway, I had a pretty big cod piece and the second I put it on, I just felt so empowered in a way that was really eye opening for me. Like I walked around the stage, just like I own this whole place. And I realized that as a woman front person of my own rock and roll band, I did, wasn't doing that. I was staying in a, in my spot. And I was like, whoa, mind blown. Like, I didn't realize I was even subscribing to societal things I didn't even know were affecting me. Sure. And uh, just having a cod piece on changed it. And I was like, wow, like, I'm just going to retain this part of the psychology of his rock and roll persona and just like own everything. And that really changed kind of like the way that I, I mean, I already had like a pretty specific kind of stage presence, but after that, it's just kind of like, changed a lot. So now I'm just like in charge. I'm large and in charge when I'm on the stage. And it's a very fun part of the performance for me. With a band like Working Breed and you have all of these, you know, extra elements, extra instruments and things that you're bringing to shows. Do you find that to ever be a problem with playing certain venues where it's like, we have all these extra things. Are you just like, this is what we're going to do? I've never had a problem like that. I've never had a problem where they're like, you have too many things. I think there is something like just in a grander scheme. Now that we finished this album and it's like complete and done and beautiful and everything we wanted it to be, I kind of realized as a songwriter that part of having all these instruments and going into all these genres, part of it I think is, has been to, in a way, like I'm like vulnerable about my feelings. I'm putting them all in these songs and then I obfuscate it a little bit so that it's there, but I kind of, I'm like too nervous to really show the world. So I have all these layers of metaphor and meaning, and then I throw in a little shiny trombone thing here to distract you. Like I'll, I'll like say a real feeling and then be like trombone because then uh-huh. you don't really have to dwell on it. And um, then hopefully no one will notice my feeling. Okay. Even though I'm like desperately trying to like get it out there at the same time. So going forward, it's not that I'm going to drop the instruments or anything like that because they add such great nuance to things, but I want to be direct with what I say. I want to like work on being direct and to the point and, um, you know, this is just what, who I am and what it is instead of like, no, look over here. Yeah. There's an interesting conversation that I don't think a lot of people think about when it comes to songwriting and about like connecting with the audience and Mm -hmm. writing from the perspective of like, okay, I have a point that I want to make. And instead of just making this point and being very selfish and like very just, uh, this is what it is. And whether it be like super self-deprecating or super hateful towards something, you know, you put metaphor and stuff in it, but Mm -hmm. if you make it too ambiguous, it might be hard for people to connect with it. So it's definitely finding how to like make it artsy enough that it's not like, your egos out of the fucking world, like yeah. off the rails, but uh-huh. also that other people can hear it and it connects with them and they can find a way to relate it to something in their life that may not even be what you're talking about. Yeah. And I think that that's the thing that I like the most about writing songs when I am writing is that I want to be able to write something that can be about anything. To me, it's something very specific, yeah. but to articulate it in a way that somebody else can connect it to something completely unrelated, but yeah. they're still able to take it with them. Yeah. I think the key to that really is to leave some gaps in it because if you try to overly define everything about what you're saying, it's like completely defensible and no one can attach to it. 
in any way. So you need to leave like a little hole so that people can go in and have their own interpretation of what it is that you're saying. And people are always trying to interpret everything for in the context of their own lives. And so in a way that's freeing because like I can write whatever I want to write about my specific situation and someone else is always going to try to relate it to them to themselves. So it doesn't really matter. I shouldn't try to control what they interpret. Yeah. I should just write it how I how I feel it and what I'm thinking and then people will fill in their own blanks. Yeah, I think that's the other important thing too is that no matter what you're doing, just do what you want to do that's natural. I think yeah. catering too much to something that's not yourself ends up Yeah, you absolutely can't up, write for someone else. Yeah, just yeah. it uh it generates an ungenuine product. People can tell. Yeah. Yeah, people can totally tell. And um, this album, it's like, it's so genuine, you know, it's so everything we wanted it to be. And it's, it's very particular to the group of people whose minds went into this. And so I'm really, really proud of that. Um, but I also, I still, I like for myself, I want to not write for people, but still write for myself, but just be more bare, yeah. you know, just because I think that we'll end up connecting i think people can connect to that more and i know that it will be more meaningful for me as an experience sure. too if music is a conversation mm-hmm. you know people have to understand what the fuck you're trying to tell them yeah i know <laughs> i keep trying to like i go to these interviews and people are like what does this song mean and i know what it means and i try to explain it and it's like to explain the song meaning takes like five times as long as it takes to listen to the song or sure you know what I mean because I'm like because see this and this and then this is like and like I'm like layering it all in and it's just so hard to explain and I'm like this is actually kind of problematic you know it's very um it's not problematic in an art sense like it's very artistic it's just problematic in the um no one's ever gonna pick up what I'm laying down sense yeah yeah but like you said, like people pick up what they, what they want. Um, we had a, I heard, I got a very nice compliment about one of our songs. This is the kind of thing that is meaningful to me. Like a guy told me, I wrote one of the songs on this album called Daffodil. I wrote for my best friend when she turned 30 and, um, well, I wrote the lyrics for it then. And then we've started writing the music. The music came start from the bassist and we like fleshed out the whole song. And then it became this song on the album. And it's all about how empathic she is and, She's just like, it's just because she's such a great human being. Yeah. And the song's all about that aspect of her personality. And it could be about anyone who's like that in your life. Anyway, um, our, one of our number one fans said he like listens to this. He loves that song. He listens to this with his girlfriend and he tells her um, his, she has, they have this favorite line that's, um, oh my God, I'm going to blank on what the line is. Oh, so it's about how like um if you are lucky enough to know her she's saving both of your lives. Okay. And he said told her that that's what he thinks about her with that like he mm. listens to that line and thinks about her. And I'm like, oh. that's like <laughs> the best that's like the best outcome you can hope for as a musician is that somebody relates to something so much that they apply it to something else in their life. Like yeah, that. absolutely. And, um, so moments like that make me be like, Oh, that's like so great. Cause that means it, I conveyed something out of myself and it's in the world and it's being picked up and used in that way. So that's cool. 
we've been talking a lot about this album oh, that yeah. just came out. Yep. Let's talk a little bit more about the album specifically. Mm-hmm. The album. What is it? It's called Hieroglyphica. Can I can I pull it out? Absolutely. Yeah. Let's do it up. Yes. Perfect sound effect use. Yeah, so it's called Hieroglyphica, which is um, the name of a specific specific species of cicada. Okay. Which is, this is the an old scientific drawing of the Hieroglyphica, Neo-Cicada Hieroglyphica Hieroglyphica. And uh, we have a song called Cicada, which is the song that features the musical saw. And it's all, you know, the, all these, these things tie together, of course. Um, but the... The musical saw, the way that it works, the vibration and the way that it makes the sound is not unlike how cicadas make their sound. And then also in the song, the metaphor of the cicada, it's a song about an, uh, kind of an unrequited love or a, a love that shows up every once in a while and is like super strong and then just like disappears, you know, okay. goes into hibernation because, you know, c- cicadas cycle like this in their life cycle. Um, so it's kind of like metaphorically likening these things. But then also when I was growing up in Florida, cicadas, well, they're everywhere, but there was a specific cicada I heard all the time. I listened to like hundreds of samples of cicadas to find the one that was the one I listened to all the time when I was growing up. And it turned out to be Neocicada hieroglyphica. Okay. And because I wanted to sample it for underneath the track on the record. And I found it and I was like, Hieroglyphica, that's pretty cool. And we had actually the album was originally titled Transparent Raven. We had different artwork and everything. (laughs) And and then it was like, Hieroglyphica is like a super cool album name. And nothing else is named to this on the planet except for this bug, you know. And also it's cool because of the hieroglyphs have symbolism, you know. They are symbolic. It's a symbolic writing system. Yeah. And everything in all the songs full of symbolism. This is like a symbolism heavy record. So, so you had the it, title already, or the title came after all the music and everything was written. Then. Oh yeah, we were like. So it just happened to be like a, a perfect yeah, thing it, that you found. It was like the last piece, pretty much. Yeah, it was one of the last pieces. We had everything recorded. We were just filling in. We have these interstitial tracks, and we were like working on little things to go there, and um, because we wanted to have it be like an album album. You know what yeah. I mean? What if this is the only full album we ever make or I ever make in my life like it had to be everything especially because it took us three and a half years to finish so like after across a certain point we were like it's taking so long we might as well just like dot all the I's and cross all the T's absolutely and we did we did everything to the max and um it's for these what these compositions are they're like the best versions of them that they can be so we're really happy with that so it's it's really a matter of like do you like it or not you know and some people are going to like it and some people aren't. And that's just the way music is, you know. Mm-hmm. But anyway, this is our album. This is the cicada head of the new cicada hieroglyphica yeah. species. Like, here we go. No, congrats on getting it out. I know. I mean, I've done plenty of albums in my day. I know how yeah. much how much time and effort goes yeah. into just putting out one record. You know, it's unfortunately common for like three years, three and a half, four years to be an average time span mm-hmm. for an underground band yeah. to put out a record. Because it's not like you're working on it for three and a half years nonstop. Right. It's just like, oh, you know, if we're most bands that are like, you know, in their late 20s, 30s, whatever, it's like, oh, if we get like 
a few hours a week to work on this, we're lucky. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And um, our recording engineer, Matt Vaughn at Hollywood Studios, um, that's out in Dormont. He's like a friend of ours. And we also practice in this studio cool. um, most of the time. And shout outs to Tom's Diner. They're closing. I know. I just saw that. Oh, man. Mm. Moment of silence for Tom's. Okay. There we go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like an institution, especially for everyone who grew up in the South Hills. That's like, I mean, I, I, I live there now, but I'm not from here. And I've been, I lived in Pittsburgh for 20 years, but I've known about Tom's Diner. Yeah. The whole time. You know, that's how I lived in Dormont for a little was. bit. Did you? Yeah. And also in my, you know, pre 21 days way back in the day, where else are we going to go? Yeah. I mean, the Tom's Diner in Southside was still open at that time. Oh, yeah. That's where I had usually would We would do the Southside one and sometimes we would do the Dormont one as well. It just depended on what friends we were hanging out with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) So, yeah. Poor Tom's. But yeah, yeah, this is actually really close to Tom's Mm -hmm. where we we, we recorded is like right around the corner. And you practice there there and everything. We practice there and um, and we record there and we're friends with this guy. So, um, he's he also... Wound up, I think, really playing a role as a co-producer on the on the album, which is really important to have somebody like that. It is, and if um, they know, if they understand your music, it's important. Yeah, you know, it was great. Is like if we did a take with him and it it wasn't good enough, like he the honesty, yeah, yeah, and it, but it was very sometimes. Oh my god, it's amazing that we didn't like murder each other because <laughs> like doing the saw recording was so hard. To, we we mic'd it a billion different kinds of ways, oh, did I can't it over imagine. and over and over again. That's and what I was thinking about, like even like bringing that into a live environment, like you know, depending mm-hmm. on where you're playing, like trying to mic that thing correctly, <laughs> or are you just going just going live with it. Like I have a way that I do it, where I put I put the microphone underneath it, and that like on a boom mic, and then where the saw vibrates changes depending on how you're bending it. So I have to move everything about my whole body to get the saw yeah like in relative position to the mic which stays where it is that's interesting and it's actually it's like a second other skill because it's like a dance it is like a dance (laughs) and everything you do with your body changes the pitch of the instrument so like if it moves at all it's changing so if you want to stay on pitch or whatever like the whole thing it's like your whole body is in yeah is in motion and incorporated into it so super cool um yeah, it's just like a it's it's a strange it's a strange experience and instrument. There's nothing else in the world that sounds like it. Oh, except a theremin, which people oh, like yeah. to tell me all the time. But uh it is but it does it, sound like a theremin a little bit. A little bit. There's something a little bit uh more like spooky about a theremin. There's yeah, something a I little agree. bit there's something a little bit more like just analog and kind of gritty about uh-huh. the saw. Yeah. I mean, when you record it, it's just like a straight sine wave. Yeah. It's so pure. It's so pure. And then I can hit harmonics on it too. Like I can get it to sing two or three notes at a time, um, depending on how I bend and where I hit. And um, that's always like super creepy because they the interval is very strange. And it as you move this the saw, like the interval changes a little bit. So it's it's um it's just a weird and an interesting organic kind of instrument. Yeah. <laughs> so what is your musical background like? Yeah. So in Cliff's Notes, the Cliff's Notes, one element is my dad was a musician. And 
So I grew up around him playing piano and guitar, singing, writing songs all the time. Like most of the time he was in the bathroom writing songs when I was growing up. I think the bathroom was like a place he could get away from everybody. So he hung out in there and played a lot of music. Um, He was always in a country western band. Well, he was Scottish, but we were in South Florida. So you kind of have to do country music or um, Jimmy Buffett. So he was always in a country Western band when I was growing up. So we were like just around that all the time. My brother played a lot of music. He was in like a cool Guns N' Roses type of cover band called Nemesis in high school. They were really cool. So I wanted to be a musician, but like I was always like Miss Goody Two-Shoes. So um, I was always good in school and did everything right. And um, I went into the symphonic zone and I learned trombone. Okay. Maybe also like when I was in middle school, I was in the jazz band for a minute. I played one really, they gave me a solo. There was one really bad note. <laughs> I mean, so bad that I was like, if I stay on this long enough, maybe it'll become good again. Cause I had heard that was a thing. Okay. And I just kept holding this wrong note and wrong oh, note wow. and wrong note. I paralyzed and I never left it. And then the guy was the composer, the guy conductor was eventually like, okay, we're ending this song now. So I was so embarrassed. Maybe it took, that's, Maybe my pride was so hurt it took me so long to get back to it. But I did, in high school, I did trombone on symphonic stuff. And that was just like, I was maybe going to go to school for performance. And then I I practiced my ass off. I would practice so many hours every day. And I took piano lessons and voice and because that's what I'd heard you should do. And something about doing classic, classical type music on the trombone all the time, I just felt like... I don't know if I really want to spend my whole life doing that. There's something that interests me just thinking about people that train so heavily in that avenue because I don't know how much new or how much innovation is introduced into that. I don't it, think it, a whole a, lot. Yeah. So unless I'm, you're unless you're a composer and you're composing new yeah. type stuff. Like there's it exists, but it's not it's not a, a place where self expression is encouraged. It's a place where self-expression is discouraged to, to to favor precision to what somebody wrote. I mean, sometimes hundreds of years ago. Sure. Person you'll never meet, you know? It's like, it's like, it's a sonic equivalent of a bunch of people just replicating Van Gogh paintings over and over yeah. again. Yeah, in it's a like, way. What's the point? I yeah. don't know. I mean, it, it's, it's beautiful it's, to like sit in a good hall and like hear this stuff be played yeah. organically. Like that's awesome. Uh-huh. But aside from that, I don't have like much personal interest in it. I'd rather go watch mm-hmm. a rock and roll band where something can horribly go wrong <laughs> or it could be like perfect and awesome. Yeah. It's just like this more, there's more of an uh, emotional chaos in it. Definitely. I think it's about what you're trying to get out of the experience. Um, I, when I decided not to go to college for it, I put it down pretty much for 10 years. Okay. I, I went to college, I did something completely different and, um, I'm a scientist and also I got married in there around in there and, um, that music wasn't a part of our relationship really. And like when I would try to do it, was music ever like how did music stay in your life, if at all? I mean, whether you were playing or just enjoying, was it still? Yeah. So I kind of got interested in music again during the marriage and um, after I graduated and everything. And just like, I just, I saw someone play a musical song and I was like, I want to do that. And I picked it oh, up. Oh, cool. I picked it up in the middle, in the middle of that. 
And I would play the trombone every once in a while, but I was like, not really, I was, I didn't really have a good relationship with it because I'd never thought of myself as like a band person, you know? But then I got in my head, I think probably because rock band was coming out or whatever. And we were like doing the rock band thing with friends. I just like was like, wow, I like it so much out of just the action of making musical things happen with my body and singing. And the saw was like very, I was very determined about it for some reason. And um, it was kind of a point of contention a little bit. Um, But then when we got divorced, like I knew one of the first things I needed to do was go join a band. Like I knew music was going to be really important for me and I really wanted to do it. And I went on Craigslist and I found some people who wanted a backup singer and, and I went and I auditioned and they said, come join the band. And, um, that was the first band I was in called slingshot genius doing rock and roll. Um, a few guys, they were older than me and, um, they had original music and I always really respected original music because my dad, you know, I wanted to, I always, I think when I was younger, I had a chip on my shoulder. Like I wanted to be like my dad. I wanted to be like my brother, but I felt like embarrassed or like I wasn't good enough to do that. And going through the divorce made me feel like I just have so much to say now. I have to do this. Like it got me over whatever mental thing was keeping me from doing it. And I was like, who cares if it ends up being bad or embarrassing? I just have to do this. And so I started doing the backup vocal thing and um, I wrote like my first rock song with them. They played it, which was really cool. Um, They learned that I had played the trombone at some point and they the one guitarist demanded that we cover Basin Street Blues, which is a jazz song. And we did that, which was like kind of crazy because it's a rock band. But um. I did that. I played a solo. I was like, what is this me and this trombone? Like now that turned into like, I get asked to do trombone on all kinds of shows, random shows, Christmas shows, whatever. Like I'm a trombonist in addition to a vocalist. Some people hire me for vocals. Some people hire me for trombone. Um, I've been hired for trumpet before, but I'm not really very good at the trumpet. I just learned that on my own recently and I can I can actually only play six or so notes, but I play them really well. So okay. you, know, you wouldn't know, but I can't jam on it, yeah. but I can jam on the trombone and I, and I practice to do that too. And, um, you know, I'm not like the world's most amazing trombone person, but I have more faith in my ideas as a musician while I'm soloing than I used to. And I get, I just get, I just have had a total complete change in away from the symphonic thing. And into like what you, exactly what you said, like the chaos and beauty of the experience you have when you're expressing yourself with the instrument. It's so different than when you're trying to like follow yeah, any, rules. Any, yeah, you're following rules and you're like reading sheet music mm-hmm. on stage, yeah. which I, I get. But that's, you know, that's the equivalent of like if you were to go on stage and read your lyrics yeah. as you're singing. Yeah. There's a little bit of a... I don't know. It's just, it's, it's strange to me. Yeah. But you know, there are, as when you get down to it, music is full of rules. And so, and almost in any domain, it turns out you're still following some kind of yeah. rules or you're like maybe pushing around outside the rules. But the, the point in rock and roll and, and lots of popular music is not to be the same all the time, but to be pushing around a little bit. So, or at least that's how I feel about it. 
But like you said at the beginning, I mean, rock and roll, is it dying? Maybe. Um, I think locally people are really interested in it, but when you try to get um, onto some other level, like if you look at the national charts and everything, rock and roll is like way it's just it's changed way over. yeah like people it's, don't want to hear that anymore and i think that i don't think that it's a, don't people don't want to hear it i just think that the i don't like using the word consumer but that's what we're going to say right now because yeah. i'm not smart enough to think of a better word in the sure. moment so the general consumer the average listener mm-hmm. i think a lot of people gravitate towards music not necessarily because of the sound itself but like the attitude and the vibe that's around it yeah and i think that's a big part of why you have a lot of like rap and pop and stuff that's at the top because they have that rock star attitude mm-hmm. swagger yeah. of like the 80s and 90s now. And yeah. then all of the rock bands are all like quiet or they're all these like gorgeous boys from Brooklyn. It's like, yeah. who's, who's, how can I relate with this? Just yeah. being like this weird, ugly, grimy dude. It's like, <laughs> I don't want to watch these like nice looking people play their fun little like folky rock stuff i want to hear some i want to see some other ugly motherfuckers in like ridiculous clothes with fire behind them but maybe that's just me no it's not it's not just you (laughs) it's not just you but there's also like it's not always about the consumer these days it's about uh there's um forgive me for going into capitalism territory but like there is there is a big element of what can sell Oh yeah, sure. And what's what safe. goes what yeah. goes on the radio? What's safe, but also like I mean, there's also psychology where you know the brain is responsive to familiarity, and so when you use familiar chord progressions, people will just naturally understand it in a way it's that like, it'll become part of their psychology more quickly than something that's like very very different. Um, but I don't know. It's it's a tough world to try to get into because if you want to like actually make it or whatever, make buku bucks, um, you need more than just your own good idea. Sure. You need almost you need more than luck even like you need to have like a good basis for that. So um, I don't know. It's just a weird situation right now. There, there's this, there's this quote from uh, uh, Pittsburgh homie H.J. Hines. Yeah. That uh, I read on the back of a ketchup bottle in an Eaton Park once and it really stuck with me. Yeah, tell me. So here's a quote and it says, to do a common thing uncommonly well brings success. Mm-hmm. And that's him talking about ketchup. <laughs> but you could apply <laughs> that to almost like, anything. It is the best ketchup though, let's be real. And the <laughs> other thing too, just thinking about music now, I can wheel this back into Disney World. Uh I just got back from Disney World. And I think the way a lot of mainstream music is marketed now is the same way Disney World's food is, where (laughs) it's all very familiar. Uh You know what you're getting. Some stuff's a little different, but it's all bland, but it has enough flavor to not offend anyone, but keep people happy. And I feel that that's how a lot of, of foods. Yeah. A lot of like music now like radio music is just like okay this is familiar it's safe uh-huh. we can go outside the box a little bit with like a like a billy eilish or someone like that but it's yeah. still safe yeah 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 yeah. but you know what's interesting about that too is um like i sent a lot of our tracks to blogs and they're this is really like a like it makes more sense when you hear the whole thing together because each song is very different from the other one but they yeah. cohesively they make if you listen from from front to back it makes a little bit more sense. But um, 
in isolation, whatever, I send these tracks and I get all this interesting feedback from these blogs. They're blogs around the world. And they, um, they say these interesting things that I don't think about. Like, cause like here in the context of Pittsburgh, our music is, I think people kind of think we're weirdos or something, you know, a little bit, it's a little bit too different or something. And, um, in the context of the world though, they're like, this is classic or commercial. They call it like words like that. And I'm like, wow, that's just not, they don't think it's as weird as we thought it was based off of the reaction we get locally. So it's just interesting to think about the Pittsburgh version of what's going on versus like the forces of music in the world. And like, like I, it showed me that I should be just taking as many risks as I want to, you know, push it. Yeah. I agree. I, I listened to the album and I didn't think that it was, I would say, I thought it was just as weird as it was classic. Yeah. I find it like very, I mean, you mentioned before talking about Motley Crue and like their swagger. Yeah. And literally like the one thing that I thought about when I like was getting through like towards like the middle mm-hmm. of this record, and I was mm-hmm. like, this record has a whimsical swagger yeah, to it definitely. where it's very, I mean, out the gate. Uh, with the first track, it's like, okay, this album is very self-aware and fun <laughs> yeah. just with like the hook on the first track. Yeah. And it's like, okay, cool. Like I'm like automatically like interested to keep listening just because uh-huh. I like just that like, okay, this is very, we're going to have fun. Yeah. yeah. You know, there might be parts on this album that get a little quieter that might be more serious and parts mm-hmm. that might even be more like wacky than what we're at right now. Yes. But in like this middle point, I understood exactly what I was getting into. So yeah. that was a really good opening track. Yeah, that we thought of it like the overture of the album. Um, that's the one song where the lyrics are written by, not, the rest of the lyrics are written by me. And then that song is actually mostly written by Jonah Petrelli. So um, so it has a different feel than the rest of the album, but it, it's exactly what she said. It's like, it's like shows you what's coming. And also that we're we're serious, but we don't take ourselves seriously. Sure. Like we are serious to make something that's good and to be good at what we do. But we're not like thinking we're like these amazing people. And, you know, like, you know, I get pretty um, melodramatic sometimes. But it's like you said, it's like tempered in this other extreme way with um, complete zaniness. <laughs> I like to I, I, I like to think of, you know, songs on a song by song basis. I like to think of them as roller coasters, Mm. but with an album like this, the whole album itself can be looked at as a roller coaster and not even just when the ride starts, like from like, okay, you're getting in line, you're in queue. And if you're ever waiting to ride a roller coaster, it's like, you're getting a preview of what you're getting into, Uh right? You're like looking around, you see that big hill. You're like, Oh, that's coming. That's going to be scary. Yeah. You you, hear people in the distance going, Oh, you take it all in. So that's kind of like the way that like an opening track on your album should be. You're yeah. like getting a preview of everything that's happening. And then, you know, the second track happens. Like, okay. Now we're getting on the ride. Yeah. Let's think, let's think start uh-huh. from there. Yeah, exactly. And then the ending track, the way that it ends is just so big and huge. And, um, it's almost like we wanted, I looked into getting, um, to seeing if it was copyrighted or not to do the, that's all folks because that's how the album ends with that kind of feel and you're just like well you know it's just big and then you can just kind of feel the curtain drop 
mm-hmm. you know? So yeah, it's like a, it's a crazy album. I'm really, I am glad that we uh, stuck with it and finished it. It felt sometimes like working on a PhD or something where you, you like hit the wall and you got to make it through and you get through and you're done. And you're that's, like, oh. that's good though. You want those moments because with me, if I ever have something that happens too easily. Now I start questioning myself. Like, did I really put in the effort to this? I mean, yeah. sometimes things just happen. Like you might sit down one day, like I feel like writing. And mm-hmm. then 25 minutes later, you have like one of the best things you ever wrote yeah. out of nowhere. It's That's like, Fuck, true. why can't that happen all the time? Yeah. But for the most part, you really have to like work through and review things. And even when they have moments like that, you still work through, you play the song with band members, mm-hmm. other people bring ideas to the table. Yeah. You play them out live. You start getting different ideas for like, oh shit, we played this a little faster tonight, but it actually yeah. had a better energy. So maybe we should consider that. Like yeah. all those little nuances that really totally. make a song. Totally. Although the problem with doing a recording for so long is that like at least one or two of these songs, we play a little bit differently live now. Like we have like different dynamics and stuff yeah. and you can't go back and like do that. Although we did retrack half the drums halfway through the recording, which is part of the, why it took so long. Um, but you know, it is what it is. And um, yeah. So anyway, I think one thing that's really cool about it is that um, like you mentioned just now about playing things with other people. And I think the collaboration is why our music ends up being special because we, we listen to each other and we each have different personalities and, um, interests as we grow as musicians and also, um, influences and we just let them exist together. And then it comes out like this. So we're like, it's kind of like an unbounded process. Um, we just let everyone do their contribution as they feel what it is. And so it winds up coming out like this because it's, it's, we're all such different people, but it's cool because it does actually complete. Like, it's not like we're just jamming. Yeah. Like they're, they're compositions, you know, they're like complete songs with beginning, middle, end story, a whole thing, you know? Yeah. So the album is out now. Came it out is. in August, right? August twenty. You can listen to it on Spotify. That's where I listen to it. Where mm-hmm. would you like encourage people to check this thing out? Spotify is good, but if you wanted to like buy it or something, you <laughs> could, <laughs> yeah, you could buy it on Bandcamp. You uh-huh. can buy it um, on iTunes. You know all the places that you would go to look for it. You can find it there. Um, and we have these vinyls. We also have CDs. Um, and oh, also we have a cool new T-shirt design. Oh, I don't know if you can see this. I'm gonna leave it in the package, but it's a little. If you, if you pull the package a little tight, I think you'll be able to see it. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, it's working breed, and then the, this is a little piece of toast with a hat on, and so it's like working bread but working breed. Uh huh. So he's really cute, and so these are our new T-shirts. We like think they're adorable. <laughs> Little jokes. Exactly. It's just like, we just like want to make little jokes all the time. But um, you can get any of these things at a show and right now. I have, have to work out. Up, right? We do have a show coming up. Should I tell you all about yeah, it? Yeah, let's drop that info. Um, So we're playing next Saturday at, it's in Turtle Creek, Pennsylvania. So it's not like right in town. However, it's a really cool event. It's um, the Hell's Bells uh, uh, with the... Um, what is it? They're called Creatures and Creep Rods. Shout outs to them. 
<laughs> friends of the show, Josh yeah. and Amber, good people. Yeah. And uh, we're doing this kind of Halloweeny show, um, but also it's like a car show and a reptile show. Mm-hmm. And then there's like all these bands. And what's really interesting is like a lot of them are like kind of like metal bands and we're not really that metally, but we're definitely like fierce, I guess you could say. Metal Metal people tend to like us because I think of the melodramatic elements in the music sometimes. Like, I don't know. We have this song called Turtle Race. And can I curse on this or yeah. not? Yeah. Okay. So in Turtle Race, in the middle of it, we get real thrashy. It's like all like death uh, death march kind of broodingness. And then in the middle, it gets like crazy. And and I all my lyric there is just, if you love somebody, you're fucked. And then I'm like, if you love somebody, you're fucked. You're fucked. You're fucked. You're fucked. You're fucked. Oof. And it's like opera fucked fuckedness. Uh-huh. And um, and then I ah, would scream out of it like I'm melting. I got thrown water. Anyway, um, it's pretty dramatic. But people resonate with that line so hardcore. Like that's the one line that people really consistently come and say, like, oh my God, I never heard anyone say it like that before. You need that's a shirt with that on like it. A, if you love somebody, you're fucked. <laughs> yeah. And it, it's like weird because like I I feel that way but I am also like it makes me seem really cynical about everything but, uh-huh. and, which I'm not I'm actually like a huge optimist on average um but I also feel that line is accurate not in a bitter way but just like you're once you love something or somebody it your world expands beyond yourself and so you just you you're kind of fucked because like you can't do all the things that your little whim desires anymore sure. because you care about somebody yeah and so it could be as it could be like that, or it could be like you're fucked because, you know, some bad shit happened to you. You got your heart broken. It's, it runs the whole gamut. But people really resonate with that, and especially it seems metalheads. So um, whatever, it's cool. Like I'm glad, and uh, I'm glad to be playing kind of like a metally show. It'll be kind of interesting. But we're playing at 8 p.m. But also there's all kinds of other bands, Murder for Girls, and um, I mean there's so many, Lady Beast. So some a bunch of great bands are going to be playing all night long. And it's also a fundraiser for Bikers Against Child Abuse, mm-hmm. BACA, which I hadn't heard of before. And um, and I'm excited to be able to help uh, do some fundraising. When Josh and Amber were on the show, they were talking about that organization. I thought uh-huh. it sounded fucking awesome. Yeah. So I'm, I'm excited. And yeah. it's like, I'm, I think it's cool to also have like a reptile show. And, you know, so I'm all about it. Um, it's at the Subalpine Society mm-hmm. in Turtle Creek. Yep. PA on October 12th next weekend. And um, I think that if you show up at like four o'clock or something, there's going to be like lots of cars and bikes and reptiles. And then the music starts more like around um, six o'clock. Yeah. Once it starts getting dark. Yeah. And, and the and reptiles creepy. got to go to bed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or do they? Some of them are nocturnal. Yeah, I guess so. I don't know enough about reptiles. Oh, well, come to the show. <laughs> you'll learn <laughs> you'll yeah. learn all about them uh-huh. snakes um so yeah so it should be a really fun show and that's that's next saturday and that's um and we don't uh we don't have anything else planned after that yet so um that should be the one you come to if you want to see us awesome right now. yeah super cool well erica we're going to be wrapping up here sure thank you so much for coming by i really Thanks. appreciate it uh i definitely want to be able to catch your band sometime soon now that i know who you are and we're friends again when we were in the elevator on the way up here it was uh-huh. kind of just one of those conversations talking about like i can't believe we haven't met before i know but it's just, i'm always we based. operate in just different circles that's yeah. all it is well because you do some like hip-hop type stuff don't you yeah 
And you know what? One of my criticisms of this scene here is that there's not a lot of crossover and I think there should be more. So it's good to meet. Well, the interesting thing about us is that, you know, we probably play with other hip hop acts less than we play with rock bands or anything like that. Really? But the city just in general, even outside of like the genres, Mm -hmm. I find that it's I think it's unintentional. But I think a lot of promoters unintentionally gatekeep different pockets of the yeah. city yeah. because I understand how hard it is being an independent promoter because you it's so hard to find reliable bands. Mm-hmm. So once you find a good handful of reliable bands, you start hitting up them all the time. Yeah. But after a year and a half of that, now you've created a bubble yeah. where it's like only those bands Click. are always playing your events and their people are always coming out. And every once in a while, there's a new, a different band here and there in it. Yeah. But I don't know. Most promoters that I know in the city have like their half dozen bands that I guarantee you any show they throw on it, Mm -hmm. two or three of those bands are going to be on every show that they play. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. And and it is it's all part of like the unfortunate thing where you have to be able to make some money. So having that, it increases the likelihood that you'll be making money. So it's just it's a game that's hard to break into when you're the little guy show business baby what are you gonna do show business. there's no business like show business no business i know something like that obviously uh-huh. i got a little theater theater <laughs> thing going on i don't know i love it so <laughs> outro time and that is all folks thanks so much for listening hope you enjoyed the conversation one more time erica thank you for being here cheers cheers Uh, I'll be back again next week with another episode. Actually, not even next week. It's Monday when this uploads. So I'll be back on Thursday with another episode. Same time, same place, same channel. You know the drill. My name is Sykes. Start the beat 2019. Woo! Woo! Thanks for listening. And uh, fade out that music. And we are done. Yeah. Cool. Thank you. You're very, very welcome. Oh, my God.